0: Welcome everybody, thank you so much for coming. Uh, My name is Avril Alba, I'm from the Department of Hebrew, Biblical and Jewish Studies but also the uh, Masters in Museums and Heritage Program and together with my colleagues um, Associate Professor Jennifer Barrett and Professor Dirk Moses up the back there, um, uh, we are chief investigators in a linkage project, an Australian Research Council linkage project with the Sydney Jewish Museum Uh, that is the reason why we're all here tonight, that looks at the nexus um, between the Holocaust human rights and in particular through the lens of the Contemporary Museum. Uh, I'm going to ask Jennifer to say a bit more about the project in just a moment. But I want to first of all formally welcome you. Thank Sydney Ideas for helping us put this on, and particularly Meredith Hall, to let you know that it is being recorded. So when it comes to your questions, uh, I will probably repeat them so that they, you know, can be uh, recorded for posterity. And I will. Introduce everyone and give you a sense of how the night's going to run. But um, we hope it'll be a lively and, uh, you know, as, as Professor Creek would say, a lively debate that will end, in fact, two days of a wonderful symposium that we've held partly at the Sydney Jewish Museum and, in fact, partly over at the uni- over here at the university um, on these very on these very topics. And uh, at this juncture, I also want to welcome and thank all the international guests that came for that symposium, many of whom are in the room, I won't name you all, um, but you've made it such an enriching two days and it's wonderful to be able to cap it off tonight with this event. So, um, to my right, I, I first of all have Professor Jennifer Carter, who is from the, um, I'll just excuse my terrible accent, the Université de Québec au Montréal. in Canada and um, Jennifer is Director of the Graduate Museology programs there where she's also Professor of New Museologies, Intangible Heritage and Cultural Objects in the Department of Art History. Um, She's a museologist, an art and architectural historian, she's held positions at diverse Canadian cultural institutions including the Canadian Centre for Architecture the Art Gallery of Ontario, and Jennifer's practice consists of teaching and research in the areas of museology, representation, exfology, and architecture. And she considers how these practices mediate and are mediated by the cultural institutions that frame them. And her most recent um SSHRC funded research project um, takes up this phenomenon of emerging human rights museology, considers how social justice and human rights are negotiated curatorially, pedagogically and semantically in cultural institutions dedicated to human rights in Asia, North America and South America. Um, She has co-authored many Uh, many book chapters and journals and um, books and was appointed Associate Editor of the International Journal of Museum Management and Curatorship um, in the UK. Uh, She's a member of ICOM and the Montreal Holocaust Memorial Centre since its inception. quite busy, as you can imagine. Um, So too is Associate Professor Barrett, sitting to her right, um, who is probably more well known to those of you in the Sydney audience, um, who publishes on museums, culture, art and the public sphere. Her monograph, Museums and the Public Sphere, was published in 2011 by uh, Wiley Blackwell, and her co-authored monograph, Australian Artists in the Contemporary Museum, in 2014. And her current research examines the concept of universalism as it relates to museums, cultural practice and human rights. Um, Between 2000 and 2011, Jennifer was the director of the museum studies program here at Sydney University, and between 2010 and 2015, she was pro-dean academic in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. At the moment, she's director of the university's cultural strategy, and she's also regularly collaborating with the museum heritage and gallery sectors in Sydney, and has been chair of the Board of Museums and Galleries, New South Wales, since 2015. And then finally, we have uh, Ms. Tali Nates, the founding director of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Centre in South Africa. And Tali has lectured internationally on Holocaust education, genocide prevention, reconciliation, and human rights. Um, she's presented numerous conferences, published many articles, and was involved in documentary filmmaking as well. Um, Her latest uh, chapter is God, Faith and Identity from the Ashes, Reflections of Children and Grandchildren of Holocaust Survivors. She serves on the academic advisory group of the School of Social Science, Monash University, Um, and Tali was chosen as one of the top 100 newsworthy and noteworthy women in South Africa and was awarded the Community Service Award for 2015. Um, She acts as a scholar and leader of Holocaust and Genocide study tours to Eastern Europe and Rwanda um, and one of the founders of Holocaust Survivor Services and Rwandan Genocide Survivor Services in Johannesburg. Uh, Born to a family of Holocaust survivors, Tully's father and uncle were saved by Oscar Schindler. And we're really thrilled um, that both Jennifer and Tully could be here. And we have apologies from Adam Mueller, uh, who's also a Canadian scholar in this area who unfortunately was, was quite ill and could not, could not travel. So I think what you can see is that we have a rather outstanding panel. What's going to happen is, that, as I said, I'm going to ask um, Jennifer Barrett to come forward first and tell you a little bit more about the actual projects that's led to this evening. And then I've got a series of questions I'm going to ask the, the panel and then we're going to open up to your, to your questions. So with that, I'll ask Jen to come forward.
1: Or Barrett, as
0: some people may prefer to call me. Given that we have, I
1: don't know about what it's about, Jennifer's and human rights. <laughs> but there, there are a few of us around. So, um, I was going to take part in the panel. I still will. But we thought, given uh, the fruitful two days that we've had, that it might be useful for people in the audience to know a bit about uh, what we've been doing. So, the Sydney Jewish Museum have undertaken a project, uh, a renewal project of sorts, with their Holocaust permanent Holocaust exhibition. And then part of what they've been concerned about is how to deal with contemporary issues around say human rights. And a few years ago we put together uh, a, a series of, or we had a series of meetings with the board but also um, Avril and I collaborated uh, with Professor Moses up the back and also with members of the Sydney Jewish uh, Museum's board to talk about, um, to talk about what, or how could we advance this project. So, um, what we've been doing over the last two days has been part of the the process of of looking at this this issue. Because one of the things that happened when we were talking with the board is that they were concerned about uh, a universal approach to human rights within a, a Holocaust museum might actually diminish the significance of you know, Holocaust survives and so on. So this is a very real concern, but also it was, it was an opportunity for us to look at the methodologies used by other museums around the world that are dealing with the Holocaust and also human rights. So our research project has involved us looking at the, the methodological approaches those other institutions have been using and also looking at the problems that they've faced in, in that context. And, and I guess we'll hear a bit more about some of those other examples too. So the colleagues that we've brought together here um, over the last two days have, have also been researching some of this work. And, in fact, our last session this afternoon was looking at the concept plan for the new human rights section at the uh, Sydney Jewish Museum. And uh, it's one of the interesting parts of the discussion was just how, do we, how, is that then in, how does it influence or how do, how do we consider some of the issues that have been raised Within uh, the other parts of the museum, so for instance, on the ground floor. So, in giving you that background, um, I just wanted to also then tell you a bit about our methodological approach, so you can sort of understand what's going on and know this is not a lecture. That's okay. <laughs> um, uh, so, it just is really to give you context because, you know, really we're all coming in into this space after being together for forty-eight hours and discussing some fairly intense. Uh, Matters. So, the methodological um, issues and international debates are central to our approach to the human rights section of the Sydney Jewish Museum and as I said we're exploring the nexus between the Holocaust and human rights in the museum setting and in doing so we have used the public, public utility of the museum to explore the Holocaust memory and its representation on both national and international stages. So our workshop over the last few days has been to challenge and critically assess the utility of the assumed link between the Holocaust and human rights paradigms. We've also been analysing and looking at the documentation associated with these potential connections between Holocaust memory and human rights. We've paid particular attention, and this has been one of the, I think, one of the really important and unique themes about um, the approach, is that we're paying particular attention to Australia's relationship to its colonial past, to to the legacy of frontier violence, migration history and the contemporary multicultural landscape. So uh, we will extend, our plan is to extend the international debates and the research into the nature and utility of the growing number of Holocaust and human rights museums. And uh, we see this forum too as part of a way that we communicate the process of the, for the research, but also the kinds of findings, I guess, that, we've, uh, that we've, uh, we've come to in the process of the research. There'll be other outputs from the research project, but it's, it's certainly a, a very topical issue um, in, in our day and age. And, again, I'd like to just thank as Avril has done, uh, thank our our colleagues who've contributed really generously. And in fact, we're going to make sure they contribute again this evening. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, you'll get to hear some of their words of wisdom and experience in this process too. I think that should probably be enough for now. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks.
0: OK, so now we're going to head into the the question and answer section of the evening. Um, And I'm going to ask Tali first. I'm going to head this down that end so that you can answer without um, So Tali, the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Centre made the conscious choice to frame the history of the Holocaust within the broad concept of genocide. So could you speak a little bit about this choice, how you made this move into this framework, and then how you made the move from genocide to educating about human rights, and in particular, of course, the challenges of educating about apartheid in the South African um, setting?
2: My dad. my father in the middle, immediately after liberation, he was a survivor of four concentration camps. Uh, he and his uh, brother uh, were saved, uh, thanks to Schindler, the page of Schindler's List. Their name here yeah, on page 10 in of the list. Uh, my father's name was Moses Turner, and my um, uncle's name is Henrik Turner. And I want to start at that point, because... Um, one of the shaping moments in the creation of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center was um, a visiting in Rwanda. Uh, I worked in Rwanda uh, with survivors since 1998. Can, can, can people you hear me? No, I'll, I'll wait. So, hopefully, you heard that uh, I am Tali, this is my father, Moses Turner, <laughs> Henrik Turner, the last Schindler starting. (laughs) Um, I worked in Rwanda uh, with Rwandan survivors since 1998, Rwandan survivors that came to South Africa. Um, One of my first visits in Rwanda, I think uh, probably the second or third time I was in Rwanda, uh, left a huge impact on me. Uh, It was in 2006 I had a survivor with me, Kokos. Uh, He had a huge machete scar on his head. And we visited the space in Kigali uh, General Sun Memorial, uh, the mass graves of 250,000 men, women, and children, where his family was buried. And uh, we visited another memorial space that afternoon. He did not know anything about me. I knew a little bit about him. And uh, he was visibly shaken, and uh, standing with him, I I asked him, is he okay? Stupid question, but then he started to say, I'm not. Uh, We visited the mass graves, my family, and he started to shake. And, uh, you know, I did not know what to say, and at that point, I just took his hand, I uh, held his hand, and I said, I'm so sorry. And I said, you know, um, my grandmother died in Belgec's killing center. My two aunts at 12 and 16 died in Belgium. So, yeah, genocide happened to my family. That's all. And um, he looked at me with these eyes that did not know about this. And he touched my white face. And he said, but how come? You know, if it happened, how come it happened to me? That was his words. So it's not that I was not aware of it. I worked with this material for a long time, but that moment for me was a change agent to the work that um, I continued to do and then to the creation of uh, a center of memory, education, and where lessons for humanity are uh, taught. And to connect it to to your questions about South Africa, why in South Africa, why Rwanda, why the Holocaust, Um, and how do we bring our very painful history, not only apartheid, but painful history of colonialism, before of apartheid, and uh, history of last week Friday where xenophobic um, protest was happening in Johannesburg and Pretoria, um, and the protest was against immigrants. Okay, 22 years after the end of apartheid, against immigrants that are taking our jobs, are taking our women, and are there to, you know, to disrupt our lives. So the point of connection, of course, is that in April 1994, when uh, we were voting in South Africa, uh, on the you know. Three hours away, three and a half hours away, in Rwanda, genocide was happening. So same month, same year, and that is the connection. The curriculum in South Africa does not make that that connection. It is too much. They tried in 2007, they included Rwanda in, and it was removed very quickly, a few years later. But the Holocaust is part of the curriculum. It is compulsory part of the national curriculum of the country, It is under human rights curriculum of the country and the idea of the Department of Education that for the ages of 15 and 17 years old in high school, a large chunk of the history curriculum or social sciences, I'll not bore you with the details, is dedicated to understanding how come in 1948 when the world was embracing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the word genocide was it coined uh, by Raphael Lemkin uh, earlier on in '44, and the convention uh, for the punishment or, and prevention of, of genocide passed in 1948 together with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. How come apartheid started? And all those connections are asked by the, by the, the Department of Education from our teachers and from our students. And there are no textbooks and there is no one that can support that uh, national curriculum so there are three centers in south africa that were established one early on in cape town in 1999 one in durban and then ours is the new uh, new center and that new center is aiming... We just moved in last year. We are finishing the center. The building is full of symbolism. The railway lines are wrapping it. But the content, and that is where I'm, 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 I'm putting all together, the content brings our own painful, conflicted past together with entry points through the Holocaust and the genocide in Rwanda, and other genocide in the 20th century. We do look at the Herero and Nama genocide in Namibia. We do look at the Armenian genocide. We look at four case studies. We have a limited space, and that was the decision decision to concentrate on 20th century genocide. Last point that I I would like to, to put into this, and we will talk more later. Our decision was to look at all those case studies and our own history through voices of indeed survivors, victims, but also through voices of perpetrators, voices of bystanders, voices of resistors, voices of collaborators, voices of upstanders or of rescuers, uh, and voices of the grey, the in-between, those that moved, perhaps, from one to the other. And I, I give the, the example of Oskar Schindler that started as a perpetrator, but without him, I would not stand here and speak to you and tonight. So the, the interesting individual voices, but also community voices, um, uh, village, country, church, um, Muslim rescuers, Tua um, or Hutu, rescuers in Rwanda and so on and this is challenging and i thought if you allow me because we developed we have archives and collections and we developed 21 films and i can really speak for the next half an hour but i thought that i will share with you a two minutes of a perpetrator speak in Rwanda just to see and we have film we interviewed eight And in the end, we we created uh, films and activities, a lot of activities, with four of them. But let's listen to one of them, just for very
3: short. (laughs) rwibanze mu mujyi wa Kigali nyoboraagitteri Nyakabanda nkaba rero nashishikariza abanyarwanda kwica abatutsi mu gihe cya jenoside muri mirongo cyenda na kane cumi na bibiriyeboneteganya ko nk’ibihumbi umunani cyangwa si cyenda baguye muri yoteri ntabwo nigeze ngira uruhare mu kwica ariko mu gushishikariza abantu mu mu gutegura iyo gahunda yo kwica bumva ari ngiye uri ku waburi kwisonga buko yonza kumeranhu birwanya ndumva nta kibacyarabaye mbere zaraje ndumva tari ibanga ubundi hariho gahunda yo kuvuga ko umututsagi gutwambura ubutegetse twebwa bahutu bivangumbwa riroko habaho ko na reta kuko imera nkidushyigikira ko nta wigeza hanirwe icyo kintu cyane cyane k'ibyo bino bikuze nabitekereje nabigambiriye to to imbunda So through testimonies such as that
2: and um, through testimonies of bystanders, witnesses, and others, as I said, we try to bring it back to our society and to our society now because we have a lot of issues that we have to deal with now. Issues of today in our society are mentioned xenophobia because it's real and it's, it's, it's coming all the time, but issues of, of uh, poverty issues of land reform, issues of um, racism, issues of uh, homophobia, corrective rape, a term, I'm ashamed, was invented at our country. You correct by raping. So we have a lot of work to do. And somehow, through going to other examples in faraway land like Europe, in another time, another space, another continent, and in going to another country that their history was parallel to our history, but their choices were very, very different, allows for an open discussion. Thank you.
0: So we're going to uh, continue a little bit along that line, actually, and I'm going to ask um, Jennifer Carter to, to come up and talk to us a little bit about the idea of um, human rights museums as both commemorative and activist, you might say, museums. And one of, the, one of the quotations when I was reading some of Jennifer's work that popped out of me was the idea that these places can, um, in a nice turn of phrase, she said, eschew activism in its traditional sense. Um, So what I'm going to ask you to speak about, uh, Jennifer, is what would this non-traditional activism look like in these spaces?
4: Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Avril. Um, So just to give a little bit of context about the research that I've been doing, I've been tracing the emergence of human rights discourses and practices within museums, and there are several generations um, within this kind of work um... to begin with memorial museums like Holocaust memorial museums have traditionally used certain types of expography or sonography and certain types of programming but uh... in the post-millennium began to notice the integration of human rights discourses within these very museums and in a first instance they're often uh, interpreted in a a, quite a literal way according to a campaignist approach to um, taking action, calls to action. That's one way of thinking about a form of activism that a museum can promote. But I think there are many other uh, ways that museums can suggest forms of activism. And art, and I have a couple of examples that I wanted to show, artwork incorporated into uh, these museums' programs is one particular way uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, the work of art itself can propose different narratives, uh, counter narratives uh, reach people on a different register than a didactic presentation or an analogical presentation, um, and so get at different stories excuse me different stories but there 's another important element in the integration of artwork within these spaces, and that is the very context that the museum provides which is different from a memorial in the sense that these works then enter into dialogue with other artifacts other objects not necessarily other works of art as they would in an art museum but there's a dialogue that's established between these pieces and the other artifacts that are on display so an example that I uh, brought in for you comes from uh, my own country Uh, It was a piece that was commissioned uh, of the artist uh, Rebecca Belmore who's a First Nations artist uh, from Ontario and it was commissioned for our new Canadian Museum for Human Rights which was a museum that was quite a long time in planning but inaugurated in 2014, September of 2014 and the uh, title of the piece is called Trace and it's difficult to appreciate the sheer scale of this piece. Uh, which hangs over two stories and is visible both from the ground level below, but also an upper-level gallery. And what it is is actually a blanket, but it's a blanket made out of non-traditional materials. It's made out of clay, and clay take it from the very ground that the museum is built upon. And, of course, this ground is First Nations territory, so it's uh, replete with symbolism. The other interesting element or aspect about the production of this piece uh, and you can see it from the um, photograph above, which features Rebecca Belmore in the, in the striped uh, T-shirt surrounded by a number of um, people working with her, is that it was a community-produced piece. And so members of the community were invited on many different occasions to work in workshops and produce, I'm not even sure that I've ever read the number of the actual little beads that people very symbolically and beautifully molded in their hands and that were then sewn together by Rebecca Belmore's um, assistant, workshop assistant, um, studio assistant, into this blanket. And, of course, the symbolism of the blanket is important as well because it can suggest comfort, but it can also be read in an alternative way Um, as it is to uh, raise issues about human rights, for example, homeless people on the street who may be given a blanket but do not have a bed or a home to sleep in. So you can read it on many different registers, and if you're familiar with her her own practice, uh, it evokes that multiple kind of reading. Uh, The second work of art that I uh, brought in um, has to do with a piece that is connected to the... uh, Museum of Memory and Human Rights in Santiago, in Chile, uh, which is a museum that was opened in 2010. So both of these are are, uh, fairly recent uh, human rights museums. And this this museum is a museum that takes up uh, Pinochet's dictatorship, so the 27-year dictatorship in Chile. Uh, which, uh, since its uh, ending in 1989 with the restoration of democracy, there have been not one but two TRCs in in the country, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. Alfredo Yar is a Chilean artist. And uh, he uh, lives in New York, but he was commissioned to produce a piece that uh, he called Geometry of Conscience. And what is interesting about this piece is that it is the antithesis to the building that houses it. I'm just going to see if I have that as a next slide. No, I don't. Uh, the building itself is very interesting, too, because it's a, a modernist box, a glass box, uh, that uses copper, which is a, a natural resource in Chile, so there are connections to the, to the local um, and it's elevated above ground, uh, above uh, atop a, a plaza, which I think is significant because it's open public space and space for meeting in a recuperated democracy. This work uh, is located in that plaza, so it's not located within the museum, which otherwise has a fairly uh, traditional chronological and sequential display of events from the coup d'etat on the other September 11th in 1973, of Salvador Allende's um, presidency, Uh, it's located outside of the building and downstairs and in darkness. And what's interesting about the piece is that when you enter into the space, you are enclosed in a room in complete darkness, which is very destabilizing, especially when you don't necessarily know who you're standing in that room with. And you also don't know how long it's going to remain dark, and that always feels longer than than it actually is. Maybe it was 10 seconds, maybe it was 30. But when the lights come on, they illuminate the space that you see behind me, which is actually not a very large room, but it's given the impression of uh, depth because there are mirrors on either side that reflect to infinity the space. And what's fascinating about the, um, the, the, uh, the images behind, I'll as- actually ask you if you have any ideas who are being uh, represented in the profiles that are on the wall. Anybody want to take a stab? They disappeared. Interesting. And that was my assumption as well. There were uh, 40,000 people tortured and detained under uh, the uh, military regime, 4,000 disappeared, so that's a very good guess. However, the artist chose to go beyond that. Um, I think it's a, a form of an attempt at reconciliation. Um, those are profiles of a cross-section of Chilean society. And so they could be perpetrators, they could be bystanders, they could be victims, they could be the disappeared, and they do represent actual figures in Chilean society. So for me, that represents a moment of... destabilizing uh, uh, what was for me a settled position. I assumed I knew that it was about victims because the museum is ostensibly a memorial for uh, the regime's victims. But in fact, um, it destabilized my assumptions about uh, what the uh, artwork uh, signified. Um, So that's a couple of examples of how I think art, but uh, many other forms of uh, non-traditional activism, uh, literature. Also, I think one last example, and I don't have a photograph of it, but you can imagine, um, the work of guides in giving tours, often survivors of these events, sharing uh, their stories, their testimonies can be Considered a form of educational activism, and I think it's a really important moment of uh, often trans transgenerational transmission.
0: Thank
4: you. So I'm now going
0: to ask uh, one question to all three, so to speak. So um, you decide amongst you who's going to, you know, who's going to take it first. But it, so far, in a sense, we've talked about the work the largely positive work that these places can do but actually increasingly uh, human rights museums get involved in quite contentious debates and it can be quite difficult and again I, I don't know why but I've got another quotation from Jennifer in my <laughs> in my, uh, for, you to, for you to reflect upon so I'm just going gonna, gonna to read it out and then I'm going to ask the panel to, to give us their, their ideas about it. Human rights museology acknowledges the potential for museums to engage in campaigns against human rights violations at the local, national and international levels. This work means that museums are required to take a public stand on political issues, which may situate museums in conflict with their funders, and I would say other groups as well. Um, So my question to you is, A, in a sense, is there an inevitability to that? How do museums manage those conflicts? Uh, Tali, for you, as someone who's a director of a museum, have you had to manage such conflicts? And how have you gone about doing so? And, um, and can it be actually quite productive to manage these conflicts? So I don't know who wants to go first, but... <coughs> Tali? <you're...
4: laughs>
2: um. So um, I... I I will build on some of the examples that I I started with. I spoke about um, xenophobia and about targeting um, African foreigners uh, in in South Africa. It's African foreigners, not not, um, um, immigrants from Germany or from England. It's from uh, Nigeria, Somalia, um, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and so on. Um, The government many times is encouraging those um, othering. Um, Jacob Zuma, our president, uh, just a few days ago, almost blamed foreigners for uh, increasing crime and in poverty. Um, The king of uh, the Zulu um, in 2015 um, encouraged attacks against foreigners. Um so what is the space of education teachers museums um n g o s in uh at least growing awareness if not advocating um for inquiries for um uh, some action um and um we spoke quite a lot about that, as we were, as I said, we are very new. We only moved in less than a year ago. We are in our space now for for about ten months. Um, what is our role? We are an education institute. We don't even call ourselves a museum. We're a centre of education, of memory. Uh, but we say we learn lessons. You know, we learn lessons from history. So uh, if we teach about the Holocaust and we teach about refugees or we teach about Rwanda and we teach about a million and a half refugees um, after the genocide. What are the lessons that we are learning? We can't say, well, we can't be political. We can't uh, talk about it. We can't sign uh, petitions. We can't, you know. So it is a discussion that we have to take and we did. We did programs, especially special programs in schools uh, that we still do. You look at our menu of program, one of our most uh, vocal program is combating xenophobia program. Uh, we train teachers around it. We sign petitions. We talk to groups about it. So, so it is a decision that we had to make. And I think one of the most encouraging moments, I think, for me was, so we did a workshop with one of the schools um, in the outskirts of Johannesburg about xenophobia, refugees, and so on. And then I followed up and saw that the history teacher organized a demonstration of her students. They were 17 years old. They wrote together placards. They did all sorts of uh, arts and other things. And they went to the streets of Renberg, it's one of the suburbs, and demonstrated. So they took something that they learned and they Sort of took it forward to to things that we didn't even hope that they will do. It was, it was amazing for us even. Um, So that is one example, a good example. But there are challenging examples, you know. And and I'll just stay again with xenophobia. Um, In 2008, was very very bad xenophobic uh, attacks in May. 61 people were killed. Uh, all around the country. In March of that year, we did a workshop with teachers where we were teaching about the Holocaust because the Holocaust is in the curriculum. So we were training on how to teach about the Holocaust. But we were speaking about refugees. We were teaching about the dangers of, uh, you know, and so on. And yet, in a session, because we do a lot of sessions of connecting to our own society, to our own history, to our own confronting our difficult past, many of the teachers were saying, well, what we learned about it is that look at the foreigners that are coming now and they're taking our jobs and taking our women. So what they learned from three days' workshop at the Apartheid Museum, because we did it together with the Apartheid Museum, was... Let's learn from the Holocaust that you have to hate the refugees. So, you know, so so, well, we, we had to deal with it. But what I'm saying is, don't think that just by teaching about human rights, or just by teaching about Rwanda, or just by teaching about the Holocaust, it's a washing machine to tolerance, you know? Sort of, you go to Auschwitz, you come out very clean. You know, it doesn't work like that. Simple. Thank you.
1: I guess unpack the quote a bit, or sort of, and, and that's why I thought I'd stand up. Because I, I think that there's another, there's an underlying question here, about, or an, perhaps an assumption about museums in general. Museums are all political, and I guess the challenge for museums that are maybe community museums or about a specific topic, is how, and we talked about it in the session this afternoon, is how the public expectations about what you do may be different than what your intentions are as an organisation. And that, I think, is, you know, can be something that an organisation, has, a museum has to manage. And, and I think... Um, so some of the, the issues we've been talking about in relation to human rights museums and that notion of activism that's been sort of driving that particular kind of museum development is also a pressure that's being put, uh, placed upon many other museums, the British Museum. You know um, the art galleries of uh, the national gallery of uh, you know, of australia there 's all these sorts of organizations these these museums are having to think about um, their own history um, and I think that we 've seen and i guess i can would like to refer to some artists or the way in which artists have worked with non uh, non art collections in um, in non art museums so there in australia for instance we 've had uh, groups of contemporary artists who've selected to work with collections, say, for instance, at natural history museums, as a way of exploring their history. And what's been really interesting, and this relates to some other work, research that I've done, what's been really interesting in that space is it's been a lot of Indigenous artists who've looked at how the museum has, in many ways, represented them. And so through that practice, that critical practice, they're in a sense, questioning the museum's authority to represent their culture, to represent our culture. So, so that's and that's just one example. So, I, but I think that what I'm also suggesting here is that the discussion we're having about human rights museums and the Holocaust museum sort of frame is, is that I think what's required increasingly is, and there's public pressure and there's there's sector pressure, like International Council of Museums is starting to to pressure museums to deal with, to be more self-reflexive, to actually be much more aware of their own history, their own sort of institutional base. So we have organisations, activists, some of them are activists, but some of them are even traditional uh, types of museums just starting to have to look at uh, their own political history in a way. Um, and and that can be through collections, but it also can be through the way in which they're managed and the kinds of ways they engage
4: with the public. So I'll just put that out there. Um, I'll answer this very literally, and I don't have an image, so you're just going to have to close your eyes and imagine this one. There's a new president in the U.S. You might have heard of him. And a number of art museums in the U.S. have... uh, in in order to take a stand, removed artworks by immigrant artists from their walls as a way of saying, look what our museums would look like if we consider a conservative uh, migration policy or immigration policy. So it's a very bold, uh, wonderful move. And I think what's fantastic about it is that uh, very often, to implement changes to exhibitions can be costly or time-consuming, but here is a method that happened very quickly. It was very easy to do. It just You just had to have the the willingness of institutions uh, to do this. Uh, but in a broader sense, I think what's important to remember about museums... First of all, I think it's, uh, it's museums' duty to take a stand... And uh, I think we have to remember that museums are uh, unique places for dialogue, discussion, dissent, Alboro, Chantal uh, Mouffe's conception of maybe even friendly enemies. And I I don't take that lightly, but I think it's important to consider the place that museums are as informal learning institutions, but as places that enable us to come together and to discuss things um, in in an open way. Uh, In that respect, um, I think the important work that museums do uh, can be uh, amplified by representing multiple perspectives and no, I think both Jennifer and Tali have spoken to that today, uh, but that's not always a tradition that's uh, been very strong in museum practice. So that notion of critical museology or self-reflexivity, but also representing uh, alternative uh, perspectives is important to bear in mind in the way museums respond to things. And I think, I guess I would say as a, a, a final, um, a, a final thought about this is putting the mechanisms into place that uh, enable museums to respond quickly to things. So it could just be uh, one little space of the museum, but something that enables them to, uh, or us as professionals, to comment on contemporary issues um, in a public forum, I think is an important uh, important addition to, to museum work.
0: one more question to the panel and then I'm going to open up. So we're going to have plenty of time for your questions. So please think about them. Um, and make sure they are questions, or are, otherwise I'll have to Tony Jones you. So, <laughs> so, so please do that. Um, so I do want to bring it back though to the the topic of Holocaust and human rights museums. Uh, one of the participants in our in our seminar today, Kylie Message from ANU, made the point that in a sort of historiography of, of museums, you have three stages. There's the what I'll call the for those who read this literature the Tony Bennett stage. Museums are bad, right? Um, they they do the work of governments and of surveillance and all of those things and they're they're not so great, Um, with apologies to Tony for, I can't, can I say bastardizing while I'm, while i but I I just did um, his work. Um, But the second stage is museums are good, right? They make us think and they make us argue and they make us um, do all these kinds of things and be critical. And the third stage is a stage that uh, Kylie's work in particular engages with and a lot of Uh, people that were at the seminar, which is that museums make us um, act in a sense, they protest, they become places of protest. So my my final question in a sense to the panel is, how did these museums in particular engage with that third stage? So Holocaust and Human Rights Museums, what have they done to change our understandings of what the museum is or what it could be and in particular its public role and function? So again you choose what, you want to follow the same order? they contributing to this change in 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 the in what the museum does, its public role, its function? These museums, in particular, what are they? What do you think they're doing, or even their potential?
1: I'll just give them time to think.
0: Um, <laughs> but I,
1: I think that one of uh, one of the other things uh, that a couple of us have looked at in terms of the history of this type of uh, of the human rights museum is the way in which Holocaust museums, as sites of as memorial sites. Have influenced uh, how many uh, architects, designers, but other countries look at memorialisation, even if it's not necessarily, um, say, politically compatible. Or, uh, you know, so I think, I think architecturally, they've been they've been quite uh, significant in terms of how museums have practiced that, uh, looked at the practice of memorialisation. Um, And, but I also think that's changing. We've got a couple of very influential international. Uh, designers, Ralph Applebaum, who's done like so many of these museums um, who, whose work I think I don't mean to say he'll have his day, but I certainly think that there are new ways that people are engaging with um, the sort of spatial arrangements and the, what they mean in terms of the very things we've just been talking about. So, so museums, you know, we, uh, there are a number of us who have looked at the spatial practices of how museums have been designed and the kind of cultures they reflect So what I think we're seeing is how the spatial practices have to change if we're also looking at diversity and inclusion and if we really mean it. So how how do our spaces uh, change or have to change in order to engage with particular ideas uh, has been really important. And there's just one other idea I think that's important to note here as well is that the sort of... um, the function that a lot of Holocaust museums play, and uh, and the human rights museums that aren't necessarily Holocaust uh, museums play, quite often, is not just being a site for collecting or documenting, but is actually like a community centre. So there's a lot of intangible, there are intangible aspects in the way in which they operate. So. Uh, So I've mentioned the spatial, but this is also about the way they operate with the communities they want to engage with. And also, this would then, I think, requires um, different types of engagement with community. And the notion of community is another we could talk about as well, but they would just be two sort of areas.
4: Uh, okay um so I've looked at um the emergence of human rights museums both um from traditions of holocaust museums but also in a broader uh Panorama, And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. specifically of museums in Latin America, human rights museums in Latin America that have arisen out of uh, TRCs, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, or in the case of Paraguay, this is very interesting, uh, a Truth and Justice Commission. It wasn't about reconciliation, it was about assembling facts and establishing justice first. Um, So one of the things I would say is that um, I think when we talk about the work that these different museums can do and what is new about the work that they're doing, it's really important to pay uh, attention to the geopolitical context that they're in because that explains why they're doing what they're doing, the meaning it has for communities. Um, uh, We're also talking about examples of museums that are either national and therefore state-funded or private, small, private ventures, not sure where our money will come from tomorrow, but we fulfill such an important need for community members. And I'm thinking of one of two human rights museums in the very small capital city of Asuncion in Paraguay. So interesting that it has two human rights museums with a fascinating connection. Maybe I have enough time to, to explain it because I I got sidetracked in our workshop. Um, But um, I think the importance of of these museums is access to documentation. And uh, Martin Almada is a a gentleman who was um, arrested as a political prisoner under Stroessner's regime. And as far as I know, that is the uh, longest-standing dictatorship in South America. It was from 54 to 87, I think, if I'm not mistaken. A very long period of time. He was arrested at a certain point Um, And uh, his wife suffered psychological torture. She wasn't arrested, but um, he relates how the uh, police would call her and she would hear the sounds of torture. And ultimately, um, she died before he was released from prison. When he was released, uh, he was adamant about finding the dossiers that the uh, military regime had uh, collected on him, and he spent years trying to track these down. And one day, he received a, an anonymous tip, and uh, the caller said, I know where all of the dossiers from Stroessner's regime are. They're in a small shed outside of a police commissariat, uh, outside of Ascension. So Martine went with a judge and several other people, and sure enough, found... How he describes it this mound of dossiers that weren 't kept in any particular order i 'm forgetting it 's it's measured in pounds i can 't remember what it was but anyway. they made a human chain of these documents so that they could take them to the city courthouse and ensure the integrity of this document of these documents, which now form uh, the, the content of one of the two human rights museums. It's a documentation center archives, but it has a small exhibition space, so I take a little liberty and call it a human rights museum. Uh, The relationship of this is interesting because uh, he then married an Argentinian woman, Maria Stella, who became the director of a second human rights museum that is located in a former detention center uh, a few blocks from where this first uh, collection is. Uh, so this is the second museum in the city. Uh, it doesn't have the archives that he was responsible for helping to locate, uh, but it does use analogical museography to give a sense. So it uses a very different approach. And so if we think about the connection of museums within a single city and how they can form a constellation and, and, and operate together um, to tell different narratives, I think that's, uh, that's an important uh, element um the other example I wanted to give is uh, from the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool, which is a fascinating museum. Uh, it tells the tale of the the tale the history excuse me of the of the slave trade uh, from the very docks where slave ships would be held so there's a very moving moment when you can look out a window of this historic building from the collection and imagine a slave ship uh, on the quay. Um, Shortly after this museum was inaugurated within the Maritime Museum, uh, they inaugurated a new exhibition space called a Campaign Zone. And this is a really interesting space, it's quite modest, but it's a space that's open to uh, community development of exhibitions, and it takes up the the theme of slavery in a contemporary context. So, the day I saw it, for, for example, it was about slavery, child slavery, uh, the production of cotton in Uzbekistan, which is, I gather, the, the, lar- the site of the largest production of cotton. Uh, and in, in addition to addressing this, this story through film, it also provided the means to engage through petitions. Uh, so the tools for engagement, a form of campaign, were made available in the, in the space, but also the programming that uh, accompanied this exhibition. And this was, again, a community space, so the museum routinely engages in this kind of community production of exhibitions with NGOs, Uh, So the programming that they did for this particular exhibition uh, taught kids how to mount a successful petition. And so they produced t-shirts, which was a play on the use of cotton, and brought this program to fruition and and learned all the the steps and strategies of of petitions. So uh, it was helping students to uh, develop a voice but also develop a, a practice and expertise.
2: Um, It's really bringing us back, uh, the question of Holocaust and human rights, uh, museums, centers, and uh, are they pushing us more now, for example? And I'm I'm thinking about memorial sites uh, as a start. So the difference between a a museum and a memorial site, my mind takes me to a place like Topography of Terror in Berlin. I don't know how many of you visited Um, that uh, evolved really in the last few years and what do they do and how they expose um, topics that were never spoken about. What happened to perpetrators, for example, after uh, the fall of National Socialism? What happened to them in West Germany? What happened to them in the GDR? Uh, So starting from looking at personal history that is related to the Holocaust or to slavery or to human rights to a museum like the Pauline Museum in Warsaw that is um, very new, very, very good and, and, and basically forcing you to say Poland Jewry is not only the Holocaust, it is beyond the Holocaust, it's a thousand years of Jewish life and we are challenging you to 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 go deeper and to look deeper. And what they created is a community center, very, very vibrant community center. So these are some of the examples of a memorial site that does more or a museum that is situated in a a, a site of memory or historical site, but that is becoming a community space. Uh, And I have many, many examples that I can go from from Africa, from uh, Goree Island in Dakar to, to uh, Rwanda, uh, Kigali and Murambi, and so on, but the different roles of memorial sites and of museums or centers, and do they stay just in the past or do they uh, bring it to now and to the future and to research and to documentation and other things. Last thing, I think the Holocaust and Human Rights Museums almost everywhere, are calling more and more for activism. So it will be activism of different kinds. It can be uh, activism around um, maybe temporary exhibitions that they're bringing about issues that are not known, and they're talking more about those issues with public programs, with uh, with other conferences, uh, plays, films, um, and, and so on, and other activities but it can be um, opportunities also for um, issues that are not spoken ab- about. There are no other spaces in the city or in the, in the vicinity to speak about those things. And those spaces, I think, are taking the decision that this is the space to speak about those things that are not spoken about. So um, uh, just to go back to an example that I started with, Uh, in South Africa, uh, you know, we have one of the most advanced constitutions and Bill of Rights in the world. So uh, gay marriage, LGBT marriage, is allowed and can be performed in churches and synagogues and mosques and so on. But on the ground, other things are happening. Real, real issues are happening. So we can... You know, leave it as great constitution. We are all living together. Everyone is very happy. Or open a space where we can talk about it, where we bring dissenting voices, where we bring uh, different voices, and do series of events uh, about these issues. So I think um, that is where Holocaust and human rights museums are going to, and I think they are going to go further with that in most instances.
0: Well, thank you all for for those wonderful responses. I am going to now open to questions. So what I'll ask you to do is is speak up and then I'll repeat the question as well. So who would like to go for it? Just raise your hand. John. So can I paraphrase John by saying that you're saying in flashpoints in the world right now we don't have we don't have these things. Which is, well, it's not just yeah. it's do you want to do any of you want to res- respond? Well,
2: they have um, museums that look at
0: atrocity. Uh, so you know the Gulag
1: museum. But you know it's it's kind of I think. I hope you don't mind, but what I'm going to suggest is that one of the one of the problems this invention and this trend sort of sets up is expectations that the human rights museums will do all of that work around human rights. And I think that one of the really important things that we've been talking about over the last few days is that, you know, there are many other organisations in this discussion in any of the given situations that we're talking about. So in Russia, you know, there are activists who would be, you know, who might actually not like their human rights. Museum. I mean, the human rights, you know, there are are issues about how human rights hasn't always protected everyone. So how, you know, some human rights museums are at a different stage of activism and some operate on a a national scale or an international scale. And I think some of the things we've been talking about over the last few days have been the importance of, of the local and the local frame, like, you know, what's going on. So, for instance, how does the Sydney Jewish Museum... Uh, engage more fully with the fact that it's on Aboriginal land. You know that, that that's so. You know that's one. So that's one sort of area that you know we're sort of thinking is is a really valuable one. But obviously there are other issues depending on what your community's interests are. But um, but I think that just to, that coming back to the point is I think that um, to expect that every human rights museum is going to be advocating for every issue around the world, I think we can't, we can't expect them to be doing that. So I hope that's a satisfactory message.
2: Did you want to ask? Yeah, I'll I, I try to offer some thoughts. Um. I love museums. I'm a director of museum. I don't think museums can solve all the problems in the world, sadly. Um, so perhaps... Um, uh, in Syria, a, a, a documentation center of abuse of human rights is at this ta- time more important and indeed they are doing an amazing job uh, and hopefully people are following um, what amazing uh, you know, uh, documentation is happening at the moment on the ground. One more thought. Um, in a time of crisis, it's very difficult to build a museum. So I'll give you the Rwandan example. So for... Uh, Now, it's 22 years after the genocide, and um, study of the genocide is still very difficult in in schools in in Rwanda. So they don't teach history of the genocide. It is under peace education, okay, not under history education. And it is about, we are all Rwandans, we are not Tutsi and Twa anymore, you know, there is a... A, a, a way that is happening, and this is 22 years later. For 10 years, it was not even touched. Now, the curriculum is allowing somewhat of, of touching. So, sometimes you, you, you need the time to process. Not sometimes, many times, you need the, ta- the times to process. I and mean, maybe it is not by chance that it took Germany. 60 years, 50 to 60 years to start opening real museums that are really digging in. I just visited last year Nuremberg, uh, a museum, a new museum around Nuremberg. The, not, not only the laws, the rallies. The, you know, Nuremberg is a, a, a site of, of, of perpetrators, uh, Julius Streicher, the Sturm, so much more. And only now this museum was opened. Uh, I think four years ago. So, so you do need some time to, to reflect.
4: I, um, I was going to say that you don't have to go as far away as Russia and give a, an example close to home, but I forgot that I'm in Australia, so my example is actually 20,000 kilometers away um, in Winnipeg. Uh, which is the home of our, our uh, Canadian Museum for Human Rights. Um, but I think uh, Jennifer made the very important point that uh, often you have to look at home and the, at the local. Uh, to make connections, and uh, Canada has just completed its own TRC, its own Truth and Reconciliation Commission regarding the residential school system in which our First Nations people were systematically, right up until the 90s, if I'm not mistaken, uh, taken from their families and and, uh, um, deprived of their culture and their language and their their family traditions and placed in these schools, often thousands of kilometers away from home. Uh, The CMHR uh, has... uh, in my opinion, not done enough to address uh, this legacy, but it's very contentious because it's a national museum, so it's difficult. Uh, What it can say, its policy, is that it will only uh, officially name the the, the genocides that are um, officially recognized by the Canadian government, and there are five, and it addresses those. Uh, It makes allusion to the findings of the TRC, which is of a cultural genocide, but it remains at that level. Um, So, I think that there's a lot of work to be done locally as well.
0: Um, before we get off that topic, I, I will take the next question in just a second, but two points with the advantage of being the chair. During our symposium, we were really um, lucky to have Professor Jackie Troy and Professor Juanita Sherwood with us, both of whom are doing extraordinary work in the Indigenous sphere in Australia, and they reminded us that we, we witness a, a you know, a genocide every day here in Australia. You know, Jackie, particularly through languages um, and the the destruction of Aboriginal languages, but just the ongoing um, discrimination and 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 dispossession of Aboriginal people in this land. And so, I think it, your point is is really well well taken in in that regard. And we've been thinking a lot about that. The second thing is to plug another event that's coming up that does actually deal with those issues and that's on the 21st of March and it's going to be... Uh, Tim Slade is going to uh, be... We've seen the ideas again with Meredith. We're going to be showing um, his film, The Destruction of Memory, which Professor Dirk Moses um, also makes an appearance in and will be on the panel. Um, and we're also going to have a heritage specialist who, whose name just went out of my head, Sheridan Burke, um, from GML. So uh, look out for that on the Sydney Ideas Website as well, and that is about, in fact, the destruction of cultural heritage that's going on right now, um, and the the issues ar- surrounding that. Okay, next question. I think I saw a hand so there, and then, and then, and then Ruth. The the <coughs> yeah. Yep. The Could can I take? No. <laughs> 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 okay. I think I think I th- I w- I would like to actually address it because um, I think it, you know. I can't obviously answer for the Chilean, but I, I see where your question is going. And for those of you who don't know, the Sydney Jewish Museum um, is a private museum that was largely funded, founded, and and really staffed by survivors for the first ten, good ten, fifteen years of its existence. It is still um, largely funded by the community. It does not get government support. And one of the questions is, why why do this? In a sense, why do this? Why not? Stay with your own experience, and this is something that did come up in our discussions over the last two days as a as a, continuing, um, a continuing issue and i, I don 't have a definitive answer, but I have to say that so many of the survivors i 've known some would would take the, the tune of yes, we, we really do just need to be talking about our own issues, but most of them come back to to i 'll paraphrase and like obviously i can 't quote them exactly if my experience didn't matter beyond the Jews, why did we build this museum in the first place? Right. If this story does not have some other resonance to it, why did I come here every week um, and volunteer every week? Because if it didn't, then why didn't I just go to Mariah, you know, <laughs> Mariah Day School or Manuel Day School and just talk to Jewish kids? Because this story is, is, is connected to larger stories. And how you do that, I think, is very, very complex and difficult and you have to deal with integrity and you have to deal with historical accuracy and all of those kinds of issues but should you do that to me seems to be a, a question that we, we've kind of come around to saying yes to but the how is very difficult I, I take that. Does anyone else want to just,
1: just to reinforce that I, mean, I think I've tried to um, refer to some of that in, in setting up the discussion um, I think as someone who's come into the, the project, as a researcher who's worked on museums and um, and and culture more broadly, what's what struck me was that there were people at the museum who wanted to, I guess, reach out to different communities in a way as well, and to to um, to to find some new ways of using the same material to in, in that in that process. So I think um, that's. For instance, one of, one of the things that's, that's come about in the new human rights museums, and, and Jennifer alluded to this too, is the presence now of the perpetrator in the museum context. Now, that's quite new. So I think that we show that we have the capacity to deal with these difficult issues when we live in the world. Okay, I mean, I think that that's, it's, it's kind of part of how we try a few things and we be brave and courageous and sometimes it it's might be uncomfortable, but there's also, I think there's a there's a desire to 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 try some new strategies for for connecting with people around some of these issues, and that's at the same time appreciating that this is a community involved, these are people involved with with this process. So I don't know if that helps or not.
0: I know there was a question down here, Ruth, and then Jackie, and then Joseph. Okay, so. One, two, three.
2: Yeah. <laughs> okay. I just want to say this. Having made it to the Rwanda Museum, it was quite incredible to
1: think that that was
4: so close to the time. So, uh, so how did yeah, the families of the victims feel if they recognize a profile of their... Um, their loved one uh, who might be next to the profile of a perpetrator? You know, that's a very good question. I don't have an answer for that uh, at all. Um, And I don't know whether uh, this would take more research, and that's a really interesting uh, line of of research, uh, whether the artist communicated to these people where they would be within this uh, arrangement. That's a good question. However, um, it enables me to make a link to what's happening on the inside, too. And actually, I'd never thought of it this way before. Um, But um, within this museum, there is a two if not three-story wall that also has photographs and this one is actually this wall is strictly dedicated to victims and what's interesting about it is that uh, these are framed photographs of all different sizes all different scales and some of these uh, frames are left empty and I think that communicates a very important message on multiple levels that the work is, it's a work in progress. The work is not finished, work is ongoing. And so often uh, in museums, we like our exhibitions to be polished and finished, and uh, we're not gonna touch them for a few years. Uh, But in this aspect, uh, this museum is saying something very different. But I will have to uh, find out the answer to your, your excellent question.
0: Yeah. But I think what you remind us Joseph is that just because something calls itself a museum doesn't mean it actually yeah. it actually fulfills the criteria of what no in, in all seriousness, I mean, there's there's one display in there that looks at the uh, the Stasi, that looks at the trials, yeah. and I don't know if you remember, and it and it wallpapers the walls with peop- with documents of people's, you know, basically records of people. Now you have no way of knowing, a, if those people are ever consulted, or even if they're real. To be honest, there's no captioning, there's no sense of understanding of where that that documentation comes from. So I think you're right that like museums actually have to be subject to the kind of rigorous, yeah. you know, critique, and any museum worth the name should be being you know peer-reviewed and, and have that kind of you know rigor to it yeah, exactly. so absolutely.
3: What's
0: the of it oh under- God okay <laughs> <laughs> that's another I cannot answer that in two <laughs> minutes <laughs> <laughs> but, but
3: actually, I think did you want to say something Joseph? <laughs> right <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah.
0: Um, but I'd have to I have to let you look that up we've got about two minutes if someone has a really quick yes. I mean the short answer is some do it better than others. <laughs> Basically, I mean that that is the answer. But but I have to say I think again, any institution and we just you know, we just opened a, a new permanent exhibition over at the Jewish Museum and we really, you know, there were members of the, the curatorial design team here today, we laboured over every decision in that way, you know. We talked about is is this photograph simply is that what kind of response do we think that kind of photograph is going to elicit is it actually going to elicit something considered and empathetic or is it going to you know get, you know have that kind of re- and to be honest I think it it comes down to sort of curatorial integrity and sensitivity and design sensitivity and and what you're aiming to do but I couldn't, you know, I don't think any of us can speak for every museum, but again, I think you, you've just got to hope that you've got museums that are that are taking that kind of, that kind of care. I think, and
1: that's the other yeah. thing, if people as visitors go to those institutions and give them feedback about your experience, but also, um, and if, if we have a, a public sort of uh, attending museums that are um, engaged with those their institutions, they'll help them become better institutions too, um, but also... And how do the museums also um, contribute something to society in in a way too um, that's, that's thoughtful and not just um, you know reinforcing the status quo, but it's actually about you know dealing with contemporary life, even if it, it is a history museum.
0: Okay, with that, I, I am going to. Um, draw the event to a close. First of all I wanna I wanna really thank our, our panel, Jennifer, Jennifer and Tali. So thank you very much. <laughs> um,